Hey, good morning. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. It's March 8th, Tuesday. A day, Rob Ryersey, that uh, the pageants uh, really celebrate every year, uh, starting 31 years ago when uh, the birth of our second child took place 31 years ago on this day. So it's his birthday, Taylor, pa- Taylor Padgett's birthday. So happy birthday to the boy. Uh, Fantastic. Happy, happy birthday, birthday, Taylor. That's great. Sunny outside and beautiful on a birthday. He lives in New York. But anyway, beautiful in the place where he was born. So I'm in Minneapolis. Rob, how are things in Fayetteville, Arkansas? Things are good. Things are good. We're, uh, it feels like spring is fighting to to arrive. We are in a little bit of a cold snap right now. And... Uh, you know, but but things are good. I, uh, Doug, I don't know if you saw this, but I, I went a, I, I went a little bit viral on Twitter this week. Well, this I've been hearing week. this. I'm just glad you still have time for us around here on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> after that, after that, I uh, mean, <laughs> I want to be very careful to say viral for me. Um, I don't know what would you like. What would be the what would be the Twitter stats that would consider that you would label yourself as as viral? Oh, I know hundred hundred thousand. Uh, views retweets that kind of stuff somewhere in that ballpark yeah really I, I, yeah yeah i mean you know when we've done those <laughs> for you the, the ones that went viral that's that's what they were I, that's, the, that's the level yeah, yeah. Well, i mean I, okay so I, maybe this is viral with a small v then i don't know um you know <sighs> I, I i normally I no I, idea what gets to count as viral what what, yeah, what happened yeah uh, so i i you know i i tweet you know i i tweet yes. innocuous things i typically get you know five 10 likes, maybe yeah. a retweet, you know? I mean, like I'm, I am not a social in a social media influencer. Um, so I, I think Friday or Saturday, I, I tweeted two in, very innocuous tweets. Uh, one was, if you want to understand the religious right, uh, read Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumas. And the okay. other was, if you want Marjorie Taylor Greene out of Congress, don't you? Um, help Marcus for Georgia make that a reality. Two very just like, I mean, yeah. I tweet it's stuff tough. like this all the time. All just the time, innocuous yeah. all the time. Uh, 500 likes and 45 retweets on the uh, Jesus and John oh. Wayne and 1,800 likes and over 300 re- retweets on the... Uh, the Marcus for Georgia tweet. It's just, I, hmm. I just Saturday I was in Kansas city visiting the uh, Kansas city Institute of art. Not for me. Cause I am the world's worst drawer, but uh, I happen to be uh, uh, in a family of really talented artists. One of whom is graduating from high school and going to college. And uh, so anyways, I was touring the Kansas city Institute of art, looking at my phone going, uh, what is going on? Yeah. And there was like no big pickup, like it wasn't like somebody mm-hmm. famous retweeted. It just just kind of took off. It was weird. Well, well, dude, uh, you have you have you know once again gone into the deep dark world of never being able to understand. You know, like what what makes love uh, is uh, a sense of serenity and peace in a human heart, and what makes Twitter work. Exactly. Uh, hey, just yesterday I was ranting about uh, the former attorney general talking to the former failed presidential candidate, Donald Trump. And Donald Trump was saying to Bill Barr, I'm going to go tweet about this now and in sort of a way to poke at Bill Barr because Bill Barr had asked him to stop 
saying things. And then Trump looked back at him and said, do you know what makes a good tweet? This is straight from Bill Barr's mouth in an interview mm. that I watched on Sunday. Trump says, do you know what makes a, a, a good tweet or a successful tweet? And Barr says, what? And he says, just the right amount of crazy. And then Bill Barr starts laughing when he retold the story. And so I thought that was kind of funny, which I thought was horrible that the president of the United States is using a mixture of, you know, crazy talk in his public statements. But maybe somewhere you found just the right amount of crazy. <clears throat> I guess yeah. the real question is, is that going to, is that going to float? Is that going to get you a thousand, you know, likes and, and hundreds of retweets when you launch your truth social account? Oh, um, oh, uh, you know, that, oh, Doug, are, Doug, if you sign, listen, we need to sign. I, I think we absolutely need to do this. Yes. I think our, our podcast listeners need us to do this. We need to take a deep dive into truth social. We need to this week create truth social accounts and yes. attempt to get ourselves kicked off of truth social and screenshot it all and talk about it next week. I, absolutely. Uh, because apparently for those who don't know, Truth Social is the currently failing social media network started by Donald Trump with Donald Trump money uh, as a for-profit company. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You just said in all seriousness, the phrase started with Donald Trump money. There's no way Donald Trump put a dime (laughs) into Truth Uh, Social. He, uh, he's the primary owner of this, of this thing. And, um, is using it to you know grift money off of all of his all of his followers. Uh, so that's what he's up to. Devin Nunes is running it. Devin Nunes is a former congressman from California who has given up all of his calls to to you know be sure that Benghazi was uh, properly adjudicated, and now is running a a failing social media network that just launched and is the alternative Twitter that Donald Trump was removed from because he could not seem to not violate its terms of service. Somehow Twitter having a higher level of standard than the United States Senate for the behavior of the president of the United States (laughs) removed from Twitter. So they're launching this new one. And I don't think we can do it this week from what I have seen so far, because I think they're still only letting small numbers of people in. I think we have to get on a wait list because they don't have the network built large enough uh, to, to make it happen. But the, I, I like your idea because what, what uh, I saw the other day was that Truth Social has a very strict set of rules about what you can and cannot say on their on their social media site. Funny enough, Trump starts it all because he felt like he was canceled for writing violent things and things that violated the terms of service around public health and thought that was so horrible that he could be removed from that. But then the very network that he's using to make a bunch of money off of his followers has its own set of rules about what you can and cannot write about. And what's primary in that list is you can't say negative things about the social network or the people involved with it, which includes Donald Trump. So it's in a uh, protect my ego state. So uh, I think, you know, we should hurry because it could be like a Trump university degree. It could be like a Trump stake. It could be like a Trump casino. We got to get into Trump's, uh, it could be like a Trump reelection campaign. We've got to get in early because this thing is, uh, is destined to fail like, like all the other things of, of the Donald Trump uh, ventures. And I'm not just being petty. Um, I really do think it's not going to last long because social networks yeah. like this, if they don't have tens of millions of people 
they're really useless. I mean, it'll start looking like the algorithm of my Facebook feed, which I cannot figure out why Facebook shows me what they do. I have 5,000 friends, you know, in my personal profile thing. I look at statuses all day long of people. I have no idea who they are. The people close to me in my life, my own relatives, I rarely see them. I cannot seem to figure out. I think I need to click the button that says only show my favorites, you know. But it makes it quite boring, and that's what Truth Social is going to become. But I think you're right. We screenshot it. We follow along. We see how many things that we say that are truthful. We have to only say truthful things. Yes. How many truthful things or opinion that we express gets us kicked off of Truth Social? Because I don't think it's going to take long. Yep. As you were talking about it, I had seen a a friend of mine post on Facebook earlier today that he had uh, gotten his Truth Social account. And uh, so I just, uh, while you were talking, Doug, I sent him a message and asked if it's invite based. And if so, I'd love one because a lot of these, you know, a lot of these are invite based. Once you get in, then they, then they give you five or six invites. So you invite your friends, you can build your network. So you have people that you already know on there. So you're more inclined to keep using it. Um, I don't know if truth social uses that tried and true technique of building a uh, uh, a quality network uh something tells me they they might not so yeah something tells me that too hey uh you, you know what that reminds me of is clubhouse remember when clubhouse launched and it was uh, one of those, you had to get an invite and i was hunting for one of those it has oh, just I, gone i don't know if you follow clubhouse and if any of our listeners uh, follow clubhouse I, we've talked I about doing a podcast on clubhouse but i, I don't know, know if there's a it's nowhere to be found. I, I wanted to. I wanted to be like all into Clubhouse, and I, man, I just just couldn't just couldn't do it. I, I mean, yeah. I I have an account, and I I occasionally see it mentioned a bit, you know, here and there. But you know, Twitter seemed to have launched the, like the Rooms thing or whatever. I don't know. I don't use any of those either. These are all the audio yeah. networks. I think Twitter yeah. has one. Facebook has one. Clubhouse is a standalone, had a bunch of money behind it. Like, as it turns out, as hard as we should be on Twitter and on, on Snapchat and on, you know, uh, Instagram and certainly Facebook, it turns out it's really hard to create a social network like that. What it takes to operate that thing is of such a massive expense and expertise. People getting into it. But what I was surprised about Truth Social is how many other Social networks geared at the same Trumpy audience yep. already exist. Yep. This Getter mm-hmm. and one other one that's got a couple hundred thousand people on it that are they're part of it. It's really something. How many of these alternatives have popped up? And as hard as we are on the incompetency of the Trump administration and many of the people around around him. The followers sure are ambitious. You know, they really do know how to organize stuff and they know how to raise money and they know how to get their voices out there. It's, it's really quite, quite stunning. So they're making a run at it. I don't think it's going to be successful. And, uh, I, I hope, uh, and all the way this, that that's true. All right, Rob. Well, we got a little bit of news to talk about today. And, you know, often yeah. we have a key that's on. Well, we did have a candidate scheduled for today. I thought it was interesting that the candidate who's running for Congress that we're going to have on today had to tell us just at the start, something has come up and I can't, I can't make it today because she's a school teacher or works in a school and has to fill in for somebody who had a personal emergency and couldn't, couldn't show up. And it's just a reminder that when someone runs for Congress, when someone runs for the Senate, really when someone runs for almost any position, um, 
they're doing it as an addition to whatever their job is. You know, yeah. sometimes the job is to be uh, an elected official in another capacity or the same capacity they're running for. It's just an awful lot of work. Nobody really has time for it. Like if if you just said, "Well, I don't think I can do this helpful, good thing of public service. I can't do it because I just don't have the time." Who's, who's got the time? Well, nobody has the time to do it. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, I I know there's one you know former uh, political candidate that's currently unemployed and just living in his retirement in Florida. That guy maybe's got time to do it, he's got nothing else to do other than respond to lawyers. But other than that, uh, you know, I think most people are just frankly a, a little bit busy. So I thought that was that was instructive that that here this person that we want to talk to because she's running for office had has to reschedule because she's like I actually have so many other things going on and one of those has had to take priority today. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're going to, we're going to reschedule with her and I can't wait to have the conversation with her because she is a, a, uh, a fascinating person running in a super interesting race that, uh, I think is really going to be educational for folks. Um, you know, I, I think it's one of those races that, uh, and I don't want to, I'm just teasing it here. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, but, uh, it's one of those races that people would think, Wait a minute, what? <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it, it'll be interesting. So stick with us. We'll, we'll, we'll reschedule as soon as as soon as possible. Hey, uh, we haven't talked about the State of the Union. Uh, it feels like a long time ago. I mean, it was now a week ago, and so much has happened in the world. So much has happened in Ukraine. Um, so much has happened with your Twitter account and with my false positive COVID <laughs> test. It's hard to remember back uh, just just a mere yeah. 168 hours ago, just the you know the hours before the State of the Union. Uh, did you watch it? And uh, what are your thoughts on the State of the Union? How do you think it impacts yeah. the political environment yeah. we find ourselves in? Yeah. So I, I, I said this last week um, when Dan and I were doing our State of the Union pregame that it, it's strange for me, but in so many instances, like State of the Union addresses, like conventions, um, so much of it is just political theater that is like, it feels to me like it's not. Uh, it's it's all so choreographed that I have I, I just have very little interest in it. And I figure if anything happens that is noteworthy, um I'll find out about it on Twitter and uh and I'll catch the highlights. So um and then coupled that with, you know, I really thought Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden has a lot of really great strengths. Uh, one of them is not uh giving a real rousing speech. He is not Barack Obama. He is not uh, Ronald Reagan. And the thought of listening to him talk for an hour, I just was like, uh, I really thought, you know, 25 minutes in and out is what he should have done. So no, all that's the very long answer. No, I did not watch. I did. uh, Enjoyed it. Uh, top yeah. to bottom, uh, enjoyed the visual of seeing the vice president and the speaker of the house mm-hmm. uh, sitting behind Joe Biden. I thought that was great. Was, you know, like some people who watch those things, I was interested in when and who would stand at what particular moments. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. interesting because it's it's part a report to Congress from the executive branch. What's designed to be, be is a report about what is the State of the Union. What I was disappointed in and this has been true for me of every State of the Union I've watched as an adult, 
it just seems that that format, the one hour long laundry list of things that you want to accomplish based on the things that you did accomplish previously is just an ineffective communication tool. I am, I am utterly shocked and surprised that that's the tack that it takes, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, what, you know, pointing to somebody in the, in the, you've invited in the crowd who sort of is an anecdote to your, mm-hmm. or uh, an anecdote of your, uh, your, the point that you want to make about some bill you want to pass or whatever just seems not to motivate anybody. And I was thinking about the, the screenwriters that we know and the Hollywood, uh, uh TV producers and movie producers and, and writers that we know who are offering themselves on a regular basis to Democratic candidates to help them with messaging. Like, wouldn't it be great if a State of the Union was crafted like an hour-long epic tale, right? Not a list of things, but some drama built into it and a couple of, of good stories and a real uh, a theme. Like, not from a group of political speechwriters, but from a group of storytellers. Yeah. And at some point, some president is going to say, hey... We can tell stories in a really different way in this country, and we can name we can name off all those things. You know, you, th- there's a way to include all the laundry list, but we would keep people hooked. You know, I thought it was clever that they started with and and smart they started with Ukraine for 15 minutes and mm-hmm. talked about that. And I thought Biden made a bunch of points they wanted to make. The big structural change in the State of the Union that I noticed was. They always deliver a line, the state of the union is strong, right? At some point they say that. Normally in the first five to 15 minutes, they waited on this one until the very end. It was part of the closing, right? So that was, mm. I noticed that like, oh, there's, yeah. there's, a, there's an innovation, you know, that has come <laughs> from the tweet writers. Way to move that line. And it okay. just, man, there would be a way to tell the story um, that would be so intriguing. And I, you know, I say yeah. the same thing to pastors and to communicators of any kind. There are more than one way to tell a story than yes. the speech making act that you're doing with this, with yeah. this, this format. And, and it just seems that that that's what should have and could have, um, been done. And then you, you could create a short film to go with it for crying out loud, right? They, you could then release the day afterward a, a 15 or 40 minute, you know, film of, of the state of the union of America that you've been building for a year. I, I don't know. It just yeah. feels like you're yeah. going to give all this energy to it. Let's, let's act like it, it actually really does matter. Yeah. So let me ask you this, um, watching in real time, uh, you know, when when I came in to to check out the State of the Union on on Twitter, um, you know, the discussion of the State of the Union was dominated by the actions of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and and Lauren Boebert. Watching in real time, did you have a sense that what they were doing, that their disruptions were such a big deal? Did you did did the camera pan to them when they were chanting? build the wall did did you have any sense of lauren bobert interrupting the president as he was talking about um military service members who had been killed and about to speak of his own son's death and uh and you know did 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 you have any sense of like this thing that is going to coming out of the state of the union the thing the dominant conversation at least that i saw was about the actions of these two congresswomen did you have a sense in the moment this is a little bit like the 
like the Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake thing. Did you know in the moment that this was going to be a big deal, that this wardrobe malfunction was happening? Or was it only later? Like, did you know that this big disruption was taking place? Or did you, you know, or did you find out about it later when you got on social media or saw the news reports? I, I did hear it when it happened and wondered what I wonder what that outburst was and who that was. It could faintly hear a female voice and it clearly was a, a disruptive shout. Couldn't really make out the words. Once I heard a recount of that the words were 1,000 or 30, 30 servicemen in Afghanistan or whatever it was that, that uh, was yelled about deaths in military situations, which was clearly trying to peg the death of the Marines in Afghanistan on, on Joe Biden. Um, then it made sense that that's what I heard. Um, but no, it didn't seem to stop the speech. It didn't notice that Biden, you know, paused or turned his head or, or limited what he was going to say or, or anything like that. You know, there's so much applause and interruption that goes on there anyway. It didn't feel, um, it, it reminded me back, I don't know, 12 years ago when the congressman yelled out, you lie to Joe Biden or to Barack Obama. And right. it, and he was censured. Yes. He, he was censured by Congress for that action yeah. and roundly, uh, you know, condemned by everybody for, you know, such a yeah. break in decorum. But, but I will say it was like watching a sporting event and you see something happen, you know, if, say a football analogy and you see a, a lineman hold a defensive, you know, uh, a lineman and you're like, are the refs going to call that? Did you see that? Like you knew something went wrong there. Mm -hmm. And then you're kind of wondering. So like you, I just started looking around on the internet, you know, in the 30 seconds to two minutes afterward, like, and I saw all these tweets of people like, what was that? Who said that? And then people, you know, stirring up and getting interest, which tells me people watch this. Yes. They listen very intently and any disruption is noticed and responded to, which tells you, you have yeah. an active live audience build on that. Right. Yes. Yes. And, and, and just finish this thought. Stop talking to the people in the room. Yes. Yes, yes. To report to Congress, but there are millions of other people, and you are talking to the people in the room. Yeah, yeah. Stop completely it. agree. Yeah. Get over the, like present, and this is true of every state of the union. This isn't particularly Joe mm -hmm. Biden. I thought he, I thought his delivery was as good as it could be. He's, you know, it was great. I get nervous for him as someone who also had a stuttering uh, a tick in my life as a child and teenager. When I can feel his speech patterns start to create the stutter that he also lives with, I get all kinds of anxiety. So when I watch Joe Biden talk for long periods of time, <laughs> my anxiety, I know some people are like, it's boring and I don't like him and he's an old man or whatever, or whatever. I just have anxiety for anyone who's doing any public speaking when they hit a, a, a stutter patch. Uh, st there we go. A stutter patch, and so my anxiety was was is always hanging on those those kinds of moments much more than the, you know. And then I was worried about the stuff he was going to say. You know, um, there's I know there's a lot of pushback on defund police and some of the other uh, arguments that um, I wish wouldn't wouldn't be taken uh, the way that they are and not responded yeah. to. Yeah. One of the really fascinating things, though, is that State of the Union addresses typically have very little political impact. 
um, political conventions when someone is, accepts the nomination and they and they officially become the nominee of their party. They they talk about there being a bump in the polls after that, and mm-hmm. and how big the bump is, and there, there's some sense that those things are going to have political impact. Uh, State of the Union addresses typically don't. They they typically don't mm-hmm. have political impact at all. There's there is no State of the Union bump. Yeah. Except Joe Biden got one. He got an 8% bump in his job approval ratings after the State of the Union address. It was wildly well-received. Something like 78% of people who watched the speech uh, Mm. approved of it. And he saw an 8% bump in his job approval. It was a really remarkable political impact for a speech that I would have guessed was going to be a nothing burger. Hmm. And that they're, they're, they're confident on that polling that that's related to yeah. the speech, not just to the yeah. other things happening in Ukraine and so on. Yes. Yes. Oh. Well, okay. Uh, maybe I should sit back and stop asking people to write, uh, you know, an epic tale uh, that, that draws the American heart into a story of wow. what our possible yeah, future right. could be. And, well, just uh, imagine, just imagine how big of the bump could have been if it had been a good speech. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a good speech. I mean, I, I, yeah. I thought, I thought it was a good speech. Uh, it, uh, um, I was. There were a few things I thought that he could have labored on a little longer. I was surprised that voting rights didn't come up more often. I was surprised that he didn't tie the insurrection and the destabilization that was has been caused by one of the political parties in this country to what's going on in Ukraine. I thought that was an interesting uh, non-association, which I think was was intentional. I think he did not want to politicize what's going on in Ukraine by contrasting it with what's and comparing it to what's happening in the United States. So I thought that was smart to not do it, but I was surprised that he didn't and uh, didn't do it. So, yeah, I, you know, the state of the unions are, they, they feel, they also feel to me like they're, they're part of the apparatus of political elitism. And I don't mean one political party over the other. I mean the way that our representatives and the way that our elected officials are held up and are talked about the 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 honorific nature of our politicians. And as you and I know so well, working with so many of these politicians who are running for office, very few of them run for office because they want that. I mean, that's why I ran for office and didn't win. But most everybody else who runs, they're running for many other reasons. They don't really want to be sort of the honorable this and that and cherished in this way and kind of risen up. So they want to be in public service. And there's times where they talk about that, right? I'm here because I want to serve and I want to do this. I want to do this really well. Most of the people who are in Congress um, Mm -hmm. are earning less money and having less personal benefit to their life than the other things that they would be doing. Many of them, because if you've gotten to the point where you can win these seats or have won these seats, that opens up for you many personal benefit paths that you could take. So the state of the unions and a lot of these other kinds of events, and um, they feel a little, um, you know, award ceremony like to me, which yeah. Yep. You know, I've just got a little. I just think that we we have too much of that in our politics uh, as as it is, and something something a little different would be a 
would be a pretty good thing. Hey, what do you think about Biden? Uh, what do you think the impacts are going to be on Biden's announcement happening probably right now um, that they're going to, the U.S. is going to limit Russian oil imports into the United States? Uh, this has been something that Republicans have been banging on him for now for the last you know, five, seven days saying that he really needs to do it and he won't do it because, you know, he's kowtowing to the, to the environmentalist wing of the country and, and all the rest. Do you think there's anything, uh, politically meaningful separate from, you know, whether it's good strategic pressure on Russia or not? Do you think there's anything political in there? Yeah, I, you know, this is, this is going to be a complicated one. One of the, for better or for worse, one of the metrics that people use to judge a presidency is gas prices. It's just, it's, it's one of those things that people, if it, you know, if they're paying less at the tank, um, they have this sense of like, oh, okay, things are going well. And if they, they're paying more at the tank, they have this sense of like things are, they're going badly. Um, Whatever the cause is, whatever the reason is, whatever, you know, his, is happening to cause gas prices to fluctuate, that's one of those things that always tends mm-hmm. to reflect on the president. And as gas prices rise, presidential approval ratings drop. Mm-hmm. So the and, – and, and I don't think those are – I don't – I don't, I don't think it necessarily should be that way, but that's just the way it is. Uh, so limiting supply of of gas, of, of oil coming from Russia, um, is going to, um, you know, m- limit supply, which is going to raise prices. And so, you know, the, the real challenge that, that Biden has is, how do I do this thing, this thing that is the right thing? Good evening, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the fourth installment of Okami. Well, doing that right now uh, on our series yeah, on the sure. right of Christian yeah. nationalism, a faithful response. Yeah. What are you, what are you, what are you, what are you doing over there, Doug? Yeah. I looked up an article about oil prices and I clicked on something that launched a video and all of a sudden it started playing a video. That's awesome. Hey, if you ever want to watch a uh, Christian response to the threat of Christian nationalism after January 6th, uh, we have videos for that on our, on our website and on our YouTube channel. Yeah. That's what you yeah. were just now hearing. So, yeah. So the, so the, the, the right thing to do to um, limit Russian oil as a part of the sanctions against Russia and to increase the pressure on them to stop their, their, um, invasion of Ukraine. Um, that's the right thing for the president Mm. to do in doing the right thing. He runs the risk of hurting himself politically. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why Republicans were slamming him with that. As you said, they were trying to pressure him into doing it because it can hurt him politically. Now, what I think the president ought to do is the president ought to say, listen, um, you know, we, we need to talk about sacrifice here in the country and, and frame that sacrifice, not in terms of the American public needs to sacrifice more by paying more at the pump. But yeah. rather, I think what he needs to do is talk to the oil companies, the major oil companies, and say, "Hey, it's time for you to make a sacrifice." And mm. prices need to prices need to be frozen. And until we get through this conflict, um, you know, we're you know we're, we're we need to 
you know, we need to do the right thing here and not. And, and so I think what he ought to do is put, put a lot of pressure on these companies to, um, to freeze prices and, you know, engender goodwill with the American public in the process and, uh, and, and not use the situation in the Ukraine to raise prices, which, you know, ultimately, you know, like they, they'll do it because costs go up, but they'll also do it in a way that increase their profits. Uh, that's going to happen. And so, you know, I think the president, you know, is, is doing something politically, morally right and politically risky. But I think he needs to couple it with a very serious call and a lot of pressure on um, American oil companies to freeze gas prices. Well, I think that's smart. I have, I have another maybe more provocative way forward for him on this. And that would be to compensate fuel buyers for the increased price that they're going to pay during this conflict. Now, I, so find them, find the mechanism by which someone receives that on their taxes or receives that in some kind of a stimulus payment that goes to people who have purchased gasoline. Maybe that's distributed through states. Maybe the money goes to states and gas prices are lowered at the state level. Every time a gallon of gas is purchased, it's written off or it's reimbursed to the person. But the federal government says, hey, there is a thing we need to do right now that we recognize is going to impact fuel in your automobile and heating oil especially. And we're going to cover that during this brief period of time. I think that would be the most like, we get it. The thing that I now have come to believe is the American uh, uh, purchaser should not have to pay more money because oil companies or Russia are being, being greedy or doing whatever, or there's a global crisis at hand. Federal government has the money for this. We've mm-hmm. sent a billion dollars to Ukraine and no one has said, how are we going to pay how for it? How do we pay for it? No one because they know how it works. It's, it's not what you do when you make these decisions. And if you don't know what we're talking about, listen to our Fridays on economics and, and you'll, you'll get there. Um, so the government has the money. So I think when things like this happen, the government should be much more flexible and do something where people get something. Now, I can see why you wouldn't want to because building that precedent, that means now the government is encouraging people to burn more oil. And that works against where we should get to. But in the meantime, you could do that and then start having the conversation. We need to get off of fossil fuels as a commodity that is so deeply connected to your daily expenditures as a society. We're not going to move away from oil because it's based on plastics and it's the basis of so much material we produce and everything. But for a person buying refined oil for heating and for fueling their vehicle, that is something that if the cause of increase truly is what's going to be happening for some global good, then that should be a cost written into the global good and not a cost written into your budget or my budget. So I think that's the direction that they ought to go. And they ought to say, hey, Congress, we challenge you to find a way to get this done. And Republicans, we want you to figure out how to get this done too. And, you know, to make sure that this, that this is going to work. And at the same time, then you can put limits on 
you know, oil producers, United States based oil producers that, um, don't get to reap extraordinary profits off the top of that. You can cap yeah. their profits in a certain period of time, like really get after this thing seriously. So rather than saying like, you know, gas, because I've said this, you know, for 25 years and produced, you know, graphs and memes and images on this that the president has nothing to do with gas prices. Circumstances on the globe do, and sometimes those circumstances are weather. Sometimes it's refineries. Sometimes it's greed. Sometimes it's uh, access. Sometimes it's just a fight between two countries. Lots of other things the president has little to do with, but the president can do some things to respond to that because we've allowed oil to be such a fluctuating commodity. Yeah. Having said that, in two thousand eight, I was traveling around the country doing a tour, and we were driving in an RV. And gas prices had reached $4 a gallon. And in 2008, we were told, and there was a big push, there was a whole conversation, remember this phrase? Peak oil. That we were reaching a level where gas prices would never again be below $5 a gallon. We were hitting four, it was going to go to five, and it would never drop back down again. I don't know, it was like buck thirty nine or something a couple of years ago. Like, look, gas prices are all over the place. And yep. we need to get that out of this crazy fluctuation that happens on fuel uh, for automobiles and for heating. We need to find a way to get the fluctuations out of impacting our economy. I'm not sure what the answer to that is. But look, gas prices are nowhere near as high as they were in 2007 and 2008. Now, that's not an excuse. I'm just saying they're going to come back down. And we shouldn't be selecting our president based on gas prices, no matter who the president is. I mean, if if gas dropped to 14 cents a gallon, it wouldn't be like, well, let's keep Joe Biden in office just because gas prices are low. Like the president is actually more valuable than just the, you know, the, the, yeah. the gas prices. Yeah. So um, anyway, I, I feel like these are the kind of political things and machinations yeah. that, that people should be thinking about and, and, and doing something about and working on. And I think, you know, as long as we're giving out money, which we're apparently are doing now, we, we just write checks, auto deposits into U.S. citizens' bank accounts, into foreign country bank accounts. Yeah. On the yeah, other hand, what California is doing is charging people a surcharge for driving more miles. So what I'm talking about would be the opposite of that, right? You'd get a bonus. People would start driving around just to get the, just to get the gas money from the government. Yeah, I, I would have to think about it. I think your idea would have to be coupled with some capping uh, of prices because, you know, it ultimately that, that money trickles up to, you know, if to the oil companies and, and is less, like they're the ones ultimately who benefit from that. Um, because that, if that money goes back, goes to paying higher prices, um, you know, so I, I, and there's some stuff, there's something there that, uh, that there, there's, some, there's some things you can figure out about yeah. how much they can charge and how much profits they can reap and how they're going to be taxed on any money that yeah. the companies, that money that's spent on fuel then yeah. is prorated across the gas companies. And that's something that they're going to be taxed yeah. on. There's all kinds of ways you can get there. I will say that I live in a state where we choose to fund our roads off of gas taxes and gas yes. taxes are related to the price of the fuel. So one of the things that's happening is like in the state that I live in, we have an enormous $7 billion budget surplus right now. Because the Biden economy is so strong that there's just so much extra revenue, especially on sales tax and on and on uh, corporate uh, 
tax payments. It's so high right now that um, this rise in gas prices is just going to balloon the surplus in the road budget and then then it will crash you know in two years it'll it'll go you know it'll be depleted uh or be much it'll be lowered significantly because the price of gas will go down so anyway there's a lot of other impacts to higher gas prices that also have have these ripple effects across the across the system which is why you could do some you could find some way to do something as some kind of a rebate through your state if gas prices if gas prices get high and one of the things they're talking about is doing a, a tax holiday so you say to states, hey, you like Minnesota, maybe you're saying in Arkansas, um, you are using tax, you're using tax on f- fuel for cars, especially, but also for heating oil. And that's how you're funding, you know, your roads and so on. We're, the federal government's going to say, cut that tax, whatever you're charging in tax to your citizens. And the federal government will backfill that amount of tax. So that's another way for the government to move money to the states, right? So you and I would pay a dollar less a gallon because we're paying about a dollar six per gallon in tax, and that would be lowered. And then the federal government would would uh, reimburse the state for that amount. So there's a lot of ways that this thing can go, and I think they should be jumping on all of them. I think I think this is the time to start fussing with the federal government spending money across our our system every possible way, and not just through the big uh, build back better bills. I think there's another way to to yeah. get there. Yeah. So gas prices. Ha, like has political impact. Um, the the president's ability to tell his story has political impact, and we're going to see that political impact um, and how it plays out through uh, the midterms. Um, <laughs> midterms have started. We had our first voting in Texas on Tuesday in the Texas primary. Not a ton of surprises. Those of you that listen to the podcast, you know, heard me talking last week about Jessica Cisneros as my. Uh, my candidate to watch in Texas um, running against um, Henry Kuehler, one of the most conservative Democrats in the House of Representatives in a in a primary. Uh, Jessica forced a, uh, a, a runoff in mm-hmm. Texas. If you don't get 50 percent of the vote in a multi-person uh, like th- th- three or more candidates, if you don't get 50 percent of the vote, um, the top two candidates go to a runoff and uh and Jessica and 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 Henry are now in a runoff. There's several uh, runoffs happening a- across Texas um, as a result on, on both sides of the aisle as a result of that rule. But not a ton of surprises out of Texas. But mm-hmm. you know, I I, I got to tell you, Doug, I, I you have heard me uh, express my angst about the midterms probably more than anybody other than my wife. Um, you know, you have, you have heard me ask, uh, folks who have been guests on our show to talk me off the ledge. Um, you know, I remain terrified, uh, that for a variety of reasons that Republicans are going to take the house of representatives and and maybe even the Senate. And, and beyond that, it's not just that Republicans will take the, those, the take Congress here in the midterms, but it's the type of Republicans that will. And, uh, you know, what we see out of the Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates wing of the party is going to be the party leadership. And uh, 
I don't, is the mainstream media now catching up with me here on the on this take on this hot take, Doug? It sure seems that way. There was a big article today uh, that's um, about how the Freedom Caucus, which is what the a lot of these folks you're referring to, how they refer to themselves, Freedom Caucus has more members than ever. This includes Marjorie Taylor Greene and Gosert and uh, 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 Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and and others. They are more people than before the 2020 election. They gained 11 seats. They're going to try to gain more in this one. And McCarthy, who is the current minority lead in the in the uh, House of Representatives, is very sympathetic to them, gives them what they want, because he knows he can't become the Speaker of the House if Republicans do, by some fluke of nature, ever regain the majority. He knows he can't become Speaker without them. So here we go. Uh, they are now being treated as legitimate. And these are people that, you know, have spoken at white nationalist groups. These are the people that yell out during the State of the Union. These are people that uh, side with Putin. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's it's the Trumpist plus crowd. And uh, they are they are serious as they can be. And, uh, and they're growing in popularity. And it's just stunning to me. Uh, that there's more of these people around now than there were uh, a year ago and two years ago and three years ago. Just unbelievable to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what it shows is that, uh, you know, elections matter. You know, we like, you know, I, we started by talking about this little, you know, this viral tweet of mine that I guess is not viral at all compared to, you know, what Doug considers viral, but, uh, um, you know, it was about how we gotta we gotta defeat Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, and it's like elections matter. Like that, who we vote for matters, and it's it's amazing to me that you know who represents us in Congress is as equally as important as who the president is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but midterm elections get so little attention the resources and in this historically this is changing a bit because there's organizations that are working to change this but historically you have this sense that like your congressional elections is an afterthought and you know you you don't have any sense and you know so congress has you know i think we're some right now it's something like 18 percent approval rate and a 91 percent re-election rate um and it's just you know, we we just we've got to pay better attention. We've got to be more engaged because we see the dire consequences of what happens when we don't. When we end up with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, God forbid, running the show in Congress. How terrifying would that be? But there was on the Senate side a little bit of good news, little mm-hmm. uh, little sense that. Um, Republicans may not be in a position to uh, to take back the Senate um, as uh, um, as previously thought that they might be. Um, yeah. You know, things aren't aligning quite as uh, as as good as as they were hoping. Um, the the map matters where the seat because every House seat is up for reelection every two years. Yeah. Senate seats are every six years and they're on a rotating basis. They're on a, you know, it's not all at once. So not everybody's electing a Senator right now. Um, yeah. 
And, uh, and, you know, there's a number of seats and where those seats are matter. Um, and there are particularly, there are races where, um, Republicans have not been able to recruit people that they think would have broad support popular in their states, including a number of governors who've declined to run for, uh, um, for Senate. Um, and the Trump backed candidates um, seem to be sputtering a bit um, against the uh, the people that they're uh, mm-hmm. that they're challenging um, and it looks like Republic or Democrats are holding a tremendous fundraising advantage in these uh, in these Democratic uh, Senate races which you know as it, it, it's really too bad that we often judge the viability of a campaign based on its fundraising numbers. Um, and, and that is one metric. It's an important metric. It's not the only metric, but it is a metric that's important. And uh, um, Democrats right now are in, in these key states of Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, um, key places where there are Senate races Democrats typically are holding really significant fundraising advantages over Republican challengers. So, so all that bodes well. So there is some sense that um, what looked really, really bleak for Democrats in the Senate mm-hmm. is now there, you know, there might be a little bit of light shining. So, you know, that, 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 that's a good thing. If, um, you know, I, I, you know, obviously the nightmare scenario for the Biden administration is for Republicans to take both the House and the Senate in November. Yeah, look, if they, if, but if they, frankly, if they get, if they, if Republicans gain control of the House, it's going to stall things just as they would stall it in the Senate. You know, the Senate's already, there's a demand in the Senate for big things to have a bipartisan agreement on them and Republicans are unwilling to have a bipartisan agreement on big things. So, so it's already sort of stalled out. And I think it's going to be interesting. I, I don't think that the ball is in the air yet, you know, mm. Mm. Uh, taking a, a basketball a, analogy, tennis metaphor. Okay. Okay. Basketball. We go into, I was uh, thinking like the ball in the air to start the game yeah. with a little, Oh, I was saying that the shots left the hand, you know, because there's a point at which once the shot has left the hand or come off the tennis racket or the ping pong paddle or whatever, once that, once that ball is now moving, all the conditions that move the ball, there's a period of time between when it leaves the racket, leaves the hand and before it lands wherever it's going to land that you don't know where it's going to land, right? So some things in politics, they've already left the hand or left the racket. Other things have yet to be struck or have the, you know, the push has yet to happen off the hand. I think that's where we are in control of the Senate and even control of the House. I don't think the conditions are yet settled. Um, yeah. you know, I think by the time you get to October, they're settled, right? Then it's just tallying, you know, what, what the condition, and there's a few things that could happen. There could be a gust of wind, you know, in a tennis match or something that could move the ball a fraction, uh, and that could change, change something. But barring, you know, just a small amount of movement, turnout or rainy weather or something, you know, it's pretty well, it's pretty well settled. I don't think we're there yet in, in, right. in this. I, I know that people talk about the set of conditions and everything. I, believe that we're in a place where it's still really up in the air what people choose to do who chooses to run what they choose to say how people choose to spend their time and energy and money how 
good Democrats are at being politicians or how good Republicans are at being politicians, that is still will impact what the ultimate outcome is going to be. I don't think it's as determined. Now, could be wrong. We could look back and say, oh man, turns out you do some polling, people made up their minds. It was settled in spring of 2022. And there was just, that was just all wasted energy in between, you know, um, it's, it'll be curious to, it'll, it'll be curious to see how this, uh, how this actually goes. I'm choosing to believe, I think it's a good reason to choose to believe this. There's still a lot of impact that can be done. We're still, uh, we're still in on let's, it. Let's hope so, because that's the that's the work that we're doing. Yeah, because it's you know if you're if you're a Republican, you want the other side to be true. You want to say no, no, no. Uh, tr- historic trends tell you this is what's going to happen. This is sort of how it goes. There's only five seats. We can name them. We can get them. You know, we can gain gain control. All all of that. Um, I don't because Joe Biden is the president, though. It blunts a lot of the worry, and that's what that's why Democrats get less motivated because they don't have to be as worried in this election as they will in twenty twenty four election because the impact will be blunted by a president who will stop the federal government from doing very very bad things that it that it could otherwise do if it was in the hands of all Republicans again. Which which you know I was just uh, I was listening to this uh, I mentioned it yesterday to Dan listening to this podcast called Slow Burn. Do you know this podcast? Hmm. Mm-mm. It tells long version stories of historic events. The first season was about a Nixon storyline where a woman was actually kidnapped and kept away in a hotel and everything. Uh, the second season is about Monica Lewinsky and the whole Lewinsky mm-hmm. affair. And that takes you then back into 1991 campaign in 1992 and Paula Jones mm-hmm. and Vince Foster, you know, the whole, the whole dealio. And it's easy to think that politics, you know, can have a 10 and 20 year kind of impact. Boy, it really has a one, two, three, four year life cycle, you know, you went from Clinton being in total disaster in 94 to then winning reelection in 96 and then getting impeached and it's over and then being more popular when he leaves. And, you know, within 517 votes of, of Al Gore becoming the president, like so many, and 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 just remembering, you know, that Richard Nixon was impeached and the Republican Party was in total collapse in 1994. And six years later, Ronald Reagan wins the first of two terms and becomes a immensely popular president. Like political damage to parties just yes. doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. And any of us who believe that even the most atrocious president in Republican history, uh, yep. just it's undamageable. It just is, yeah. you know, it's, it's throwing rocks at a mountain. It makes a yep. little ding and a little dust, but that's about it. Um, so the, that's not how political change happens. It's actually, but a lot of political change does happen. So it doesn't happen by imploding or by disastrous, um, uh, politicking. It happens through a lot of other means, uh, which yeah. is what hopefully we're up to in the work that, that yeah. we're, we're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you say? Is that good for today? You know, I, I just want to give everybody an update. I have uh, on your Twitter account create, on your on your. I, on have, your, uh, I have created my Truth Social account. I am. So here's the message I have. Did you your did you receive an invite, invite to do this, or did you just? Uh, uh, no, you I just just downloaded the, the app and went for it. Your account has been created successfully. Thank you for joining. Due to massive demand, we have placed you on our wait list. We love you, and you're not just a number, another number to us, but your wait list number is below. Would you like to guess what my wait list number is, Doug? 
417,311. How about you, uh, Producer Dan? Do you have a guess at what my waitlist number is? 33. <laughs> <laughs> my waitlist number is 1,161,599. Oh, man. Shanker. They don't have a million people on there. They're lie. They just there's a lot. You lie. That's what I want to yell. Uh, <laughs> a million people. Look, if they if they have a million people on their wait list, good for you. And why are you keeping a million people? Yeah. Um, you clearly have horrible infrastructure built if you have a million people on a wait list. Yeah. And, and that they don't have a date by which they've said, hey, we're, you know, you yeah. sign up now and then we launch this thing from beta to full, which might be what they're doing. But yeah. it, in fact, it doesn't say it. I will say something about that message that strikes me is Donald Trump's use of I love you and mm-hmm. like feelings of, care and and you know affection uh, validation yeah which come on i mean you know should we talk to his wife and kids about if that's actually a thing that he does in human relationships yeah. no it doesn't <laughs> it. Uh, but the fact that they utilize that mm-hmm. kind of language there so directly so directly we love you yes yeah, it's really something. There's something to learn there. So maybe, maybe by the time maybe. we talk again, I will have gotten into Truth Social and gotten kicked out. So we'll you you out. think they're going to process that million people in the next 168 hours? That would I be awesome. I, I think we're I think we're months away from from getting on it, but I, I do <laughs> I do will, will go on. I want it to be like those Snapchat kids that told them that there were like you know four hundred forty thousand yep. people coming to their. Uh, Coming to their oh, rally. They, yeah, they were expecting a million people in Tulsa and you know, eighteen showed up. <laughs> Including Herman Cain, sadly. Uh, yeah. Boy, you forget about that. You forget about all the people who can't went to Trump events, got COVID and died. Um it's it's yeah. no good. Uh all right. Well, uh thanks for the the the, the, the fun and rambling conversation uh about, about all such things. And, and and all the best to the people in Ukraine. We talked about this yesterday, so yeah. that's probably why we didn't get out of today. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, that's terrible. Just mm-hmm. terrible. All right. Hey, tomorrow we're going to talk to Paula Williams. Paula uh, is a uh, transgender person and uh, is a pastor and is has come through her own change in conservatism. And we're going to talk about uh, what we can do about the people who are so impacted by transgender bias and bullying and cruelty uh, in our world so paula williams tomorrow at the uh you know on the podcast here awesome 10 a.m central 11 o'clock on the east coast nine in the mountain region eight out on the left coast and then whatever it is in hawaii i don't know and that's all the places right it's all the time zones that's it it's very american centric of you thank you <laughs> all right see you tomorrow <laughs>